Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Nor is I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where me, Hank Green, and John Green, that other guy, answer your questions and give you dubious advice and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and, of course, AFC Wimbledon. John, how you doing? I'm doing terribly. Thank you for asking. I uh, broke my rib almost a week ago. It is extremely painful. Everything hurts. It hurts to stand. It hurts to sit. It hurts to lie down. I can't sleep at night. It just sucks. I don't even really want to talk about it, uh, but I also can't think about anything else. So uh, just tell me how you're doing. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, pain, John, is a sign that you're not dead. So there's that going for you. I find that to be extraordinarily cold comfort. I think that pain is the stupidest uh, of all the human experiences. It is the one that I have found the least meaningful. Uh, but I, I am admittedly a little bit biased right now. Hank, uh, we need to get to an important topic uh, in re last week's podcast, which is that... Oh, is it, is it the, is it the uh, spelling and pronunciation of huge? It is the spelling and pronunciation of huge. We have never experienced quite the deluge of yeah. emails, tweets, etc. in re the spelling of huge. What I found most fascinating, this is the sh- how to shorten the word usual. What I found most fascinating is how many people were completely convinced that they knew the correct spelling of huge and that all the other spellings were stupid. Yeah, uh, specifically the ones who were clearly wrong. And yet everybody's spelling disagreed with everyone else's except yeah. for the one person who was an actual linguist. Oh, yeah. The, the, we had several. I, I felt as if we had several linguists commenting on the matter and indeed cringing at, uh, at, our, at our, uh, our, our armchair linguist Ness. What do you ling, linguicity? What is what is the linguist version of philosophy? I believe it's the, linguicity. Arm, I believe that's correct. <laughs> armchair linguistics. I did it. I remembered. So somebody wrote in with a link to an extensive linguist conversation on this topic, and I just want to read a little bit of it. Uh, we'll link to it on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John. The reason this problem arises is that the consonant in the middle of usual, which phoneticians call the voiced palatovelior fricative, and which is written in the International Phonetic Alphabet as this thing that isn't a letter, doesn't have a fixed representation in the English writing system. Anyway, the long and short of it is that most of the linguists I heard from think that it should be U-Z-H or U-Z-H-E. Yeah, I guess I'd probably pronounce that U-Z-H-E. But I will say that, Hank, on this website, there are lots of linguists, proper linguists, fighting this out about how to best represent huge in Latin letters. So we are not alone in feeling, uh, you know, kind of lost in this conversation. I, I also have to say that, Catherine, I walked, uh, I got in home from work, I walked into my house, and I hear my own voice and yours coming from upstairs. And Catherine is listening to this section of the podcast, and she's sitting on the couch, and on her lap is her laptop, and she's she's looking at Urban Dictionary to see 
what the most common spellings on Urban Dictionary for use are. And indeed, there are a number of different uh, different uh, spellings of use on Urban, Urban Dictionary. U-Z-H-E is one of them. But the most common one is the one that I suggested, which was just U-J-E. And uh, and so that that was that seemed to be in terms of the colloquial, not not necessarily the phoneticians and or the linguists uh, uh, correct spelling, but the colloquial spelling might just be U J E. And I will say, that was my call. Yeah, I'm gonna just stop you right there and point out that when you're trying to use Urban Dictionary to back up your arguments, you're in trouble already. Uh, <laughs> One more uh, correction in the form of a short poem, Hank, before we start the proper podcast. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you talked about the Martian rover singing itself happy birthday alone mm-hmm. on Mars. And uh, I've written a short poem uh, in response. Six light minutes from Earth, alone on a red planet, which incidentally is not a shade of brown, a Martian rover does not sing itself happy birthday. Oh, is this, is this my... This is the correction uh, that we received from... This is the correction, Hank. The Martian rover sang itself happy birthday once on its first birthday. Since then, it has not sung itself happy birthday. This is an urban legend that you have propagated. My bad. This is a correction sent to us by Michelle, who has a friend who works on the Curiosity rover and also linked to us to an actual article that uh, from from the Curi- a tweet from the Curiosity rover confirming that uh, it does not do this every year, but only on the first year. John, do you want to do any questions? Yeah, sure. Let's get to some questions from our listeners. This first one is from Charlene, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my husband and I were discussing what we would do with lottery winnings of multiple billions of dollars. I said that amount of money was too much for a single person to hold on to and that I would give away the majority of it. My husband said he would never want to give any of it away. I mean, Charlene, any of it? Really? (laughs) (laughs) I'm concerned that your husband might be a terrible person. Anyway, I asked incredulously what he would do with all that money, and he said he always wanted to swim in a vault of money like Scrooge McDuck. I want to know what denominations of money would be best for swimming, (laughs) and how big of a room would you need to store the denominations of money so that it equaled just one of the billions he wants to keep swimming in? Uh, Hank, I thought this was an interesting question because I, if I were to win a billion dollars or get a billion dollars, however, in whatever way, I have to tell you, I would give almost all of it away immediately. Just because, just because you don't want to have that, that hanging over you and have everyone know that about you? That, I don't think that it's good for your kids, really, to inherit huge sums of money. I think that it can be very distorting in their lives and not not allow them to have their own lives that are independent of their parents. Uh, I feel like it would be a weird amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, I don't feel like it would in any way make my life better. Now, like, there are lots of sums of money that would make my life better, um, but I don't think a billion dollars is one of them. Well, uh, in that case, like, you might as well just fill a vault up with it. And, and I have, but I I have to say that if you fill a vault with coins and you jump into it from a diving board that is, you know, any more than a few feet above the surface of the coins, you're going to die. Like, you're going to hit that. Yeah, you're about to die. Break your neck. Like, the, it's, the coins do not make a liquid. Scrooge McDuck had special superpowers that... Uh, that allowed him to swim in money. And indeed, I remember an episode of the DuckTales where uh, Scrooge was swimming around and the, the boys, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, jumped in and were unable to and were uh, were unpleasantly surprised by how they had run into a solid wall of metal. Um, so you would have to mix together, I think, some like have some kind of system to mix together uh, paper currency as well as maybe a little bit of coinage to give density but you would have to have a system to constantly mix it because they would fall out. Or you could create maybe some kind of origami shape where you were putting some currency inside of a bill and then folding the bill up in a certain way that would create a, a, a density more uh, suitable to swimming around in. Uh, I think that it's not impossible to figure out a way to make this work, but it is, it's not simple either. Yeah, no, here's what I would say, Hank. I would say that Charlene's husband is genuinely risking death by inheriting a billion dollars or winning a billion dollars and turning it into a pool full of coins, which I think is pretty metaphorically resonant uh, in re what it would be actually like to suddenly have a billion dollars. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I uh, 
I would take a billion dollars, though, because I'd have a lot of fun giving it away. We've got another question. It's from Catherine, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I was in my backyard spray painting, and I accidentally spray painted a part of a bush blue while making some lovely squid art. I tried spray painting the bush green, but the shades of green don't match. What do I do? Hank, I don't know if we're going to have the same response to this one, but um, you want to just say on three what we think Catherine should do? Yes. One, two, three, move. Burn your entire house down. Yeah, okay, so we're in the same direction here. Like, this is a crisis, and the only way to deal with it is to run screaming from this property. Like, this this should not be your house anymore. You're never going to be able to get that bush back the correct shade of green. You need to just probably move to a whole different city. Yeah, I mean, I'd go to Mars if you could. Well, you can't, fortunately. Um, but I don't think you need to go to Mars. I, but I think you need to, like, you need to reinvent your whole life. You need, it. just you and that one work of squid art need to walk out that door with no other belongings and just find a new life for yourself. In fact, Catherine, don't even name yourself Catherine. In this new life, like, <laughs> you can have no connection to the person that spray-painted that bush blue. Like, you've got to be a completely different person, except you'll always know that you're still you when you look up and you see that squid art. All right. Well, I think we've covered that one pretty well, John. Do you have any other questions for us? No, that was it. That was the end. Of, that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> All right, I got one, though, if you want me to keep going. It's from Parker, who asks, Dear Hank and John, What the heck even is accounting? I know it's important, and there are a lot of really smart people who are great at it, but it is just not click in my brain. Why do I have to take accounting for my management major? Can't I just check a box that says, I will hire an accountant? Can't I just take an accounting <laughs> vocabulary class so I understand what my accountant is talking about? Best wishes, Parker. Ow, it hurts to laugh, but uh, the idea that you could check a box. <laughs> It's just the problem with the checking the box, Parker, is that if you check a box saying I will hire an accountant, you're essentially checking a box that says I'm going to give someone free reign to steal from me because I will have no idea whether they are telling me the truth. <laughs> and there's that. Uh, and, and in general, uh, as a business person, it is always good to understand what all of the people in your organization are doing, even if you aren't doing it. Uh, as far as the question, what the heck even is accounting? I think you could Google that one. But, uh, you know, it's keeping account of what all the money is doing. Uh, that's why they call it accounting. Yeah, I mean, it turns out to be really important to know whether your business is losing money or <laughs> making money. And like for a long time in Hank and I's career, we did not pay attention to that question. And it turns out like to be a deeply interesting and important question. Um, and uh, we sort of missed the boat by not giving it a little more attention early on. <laughs> Maybe. Also, I think that I enjoyed the way that we did it. Uh, but... I, uh, you know, there, there is, there are managers who, who don't know how to do accounting and, and, uh, and I certainly, I'm not an accountant or anything. Um, but like, I, I think that you're in school to learn stuff and you should, uh, you should learn stuff even if you don't like learning it. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Also it's helpful in your, I would argue it's helpful in your everyday life. Like for many, many years, I did not know how to read an Excel spreadsheet. I did not know how to balance my checkbook. And it, that stuff was really stressful for me. It caused me a lot of stress and anxiety. And it turns out that like in the end, it isn't that hard. I just had to do the work to learn how to be able to do those things. And once I could, I suddenly felt like I had, you know, a little bit of control over my financial life instead of it being something that was happening to me. Um, you know, my bank occasionally writing to say that I had overdrawn my account and then I'm just like <laughs> thrown into a panic. Like I was, I, I was instead in a situation where I felt like, okay, I'm in, I, I have some control over this. I know why this happened. I know why that happened. And it's really empowering for me. So I actually, I, I think it's worth it to learn some basic accounting, no matter what you're going to do. In yeah, life. I mean, I'm sure that Parker's accounting class is more uh, advanced than that. And, and that is why he's finding it particularly uh, annoying. But um, but those, yeah, I, I, it's it's valuable. I'm going to just say it's valuable. And, uh, and that's going to be, and in general, I... I feel like if you're enjoying more than 50% of your work, 
then you're good. And so maybe this is just part of the 50% that you don't love. What, uh, what percentage of your work do you enjoy, do you think? I probably enjoy uh, 80, 80 to 90% of my work. That's interesting. I think I think I'm in a similar I think I'm probably like 75 percent, but I feel really good about that. Like I didn't there, there hasn't been a time in my life when I've enjoyed as high a percentage of my work as I do right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because uh, there's a difference between what I enjoy doing and what I uh, enjoy thinking about doing and what I uh, dread. So like there are things that mm-hmm. I dread that I enjoy doing. I don't I don't know if that sounds right. insane. But like, uh, like I'm like, oh, I have to do that thing. And then once I'm doing it, I'm like, this is fine and great. And I actually quite like it. But before I'm doing it, I'm, I spend a lot of time being stressed out about the fact that I have to do it. The big distinction in my life is there are some things I enjoy doing and there are some things I enjoy having done. So I definitely enjoy having written much more than I enjoy writing. But that said, like I do, I I like writing enough to consider it in the 75% of stuff that I like doing. The 25% of stuff is mostly uh, paperwork and emails. Yeah. Yeah. It's mostly, it's a lot of email for me. It's also like just when things go wrong, you know, it's like, that's the stuff. And and I feel like that percentage could increase dramatically if it's like, if it's a month where things are going wrong more. Um, but uh, that always makes stuff much harder when it's not going well. Uh, and we're very, I've been very lucky to have things go very well, um, you know, for the most part. Yeah, things are going pretty well these uh, days. Um, Hank. Fail- failure is unpleasant. Uh, as much as I try to say that it is just part of process and of course everybody fails and it's just part of, uh, it's a thing that is going to be a part of your life. But it is unpleasant and I don't like it. It is unpleasant, but man, do you learn a lot more from failure than you learn from success in my experience. Definitely true. The problem with success is that it tells you that, like, you know, things are always going to be easy and you're a special snowflake and there's nobody like Mm -hmm. you. And that's why you're going to always succeed everywhere you go. And then failure teaches you a lot. Yep. (laughs) All right. This question is from Hannah Hank, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm kind of very confused about how gas planets work. Are they just like really big clouds? How do they maintain a uniform shape? How do they have an orbit? Do they have a surface or gravity? How dense are they? Okay, actually ignore all those questions and just answer this one. If an airplane can fly through a cloud, could a rocket ship hypothetically fly through Jupiter? They don't teach these things in my public school. Hannah, that's a fantastic questions that I've never even paused to consider. Uh, well, first of all, I'll say that if a if a airplane is going fast enough, it actually can't fly through air. Um, there comes a point at which uh, air is dense enough, gas is dense enough that it will tear the plane apart. You see this as uh, meteors are coming through our atmosphere at a very high speed. They get very hot because the gases in front of them are being compressed and all that energy is being turned into heat. They break apart, they are ripped into pieces, um, and they explode. Uh, and that is one of the crazy things about uh, about gases. They seem like they're hardly there at all, but if you're moving fast enough, they're basically a brick wall, just like Scrooge McDuck's coins. So uh, a rocket ship could, uh, you know, fly into Jupiter if it was going slow enough. If it was going the speed that a rocket ship normally goes, it would totally be ripped apart by the gas. But the way that it works is it's basically uh, all like gas has mass. Uh, it's the gas is matter and it has a mass and it has a weight. And so it creates gravity and all of that gas all together uh, pulls itself together into this giant thing. And at the very middle, it's very dense because there is so much gas that there's all this pressure being pushed down on it by gravity. And down there in the, in the center of Jupiter, we do not know what is there. We don't know if there, like probably what's there is it's like, like it's under so much pressure that the gas becomes metallic. It like, it it goes from being a gas to being a solid or, or a liquid. And you've got this like metallic hydrogen core of Jupiter. We're not sure though, because it is a giant planet and we will never be able to go into the middle of it because whatever we would send down there would totally get crushed by that tremendous pressure. So it's just a, it's a collection of gas in a, in a sphere that is being held together in a sphere, just like a liquid would, or just like a solid would, our planet being solid, uh, has been crushed into this spherical, spherical shape by the gravity, by the density of its own mass. 
mass, and that's also what's happening with Jupiter. I find something about that just astonishingly beautiful, the idea that we'll never know what the center of Jupiter looks like, and we have to like live in a universe knowing that that's something that we can never know. Well, John, we don't even know what the like the, the center of Earth looks like. We have some ideas, but those ideas continue progressing and changing. And, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, we uh, I now I don't like to correct you on science stuff, but I am going to have to just ask you to hit the pause button on that one, because, in fact, I don't know if you've read Journey to the Center of the Earth, but Jules Verne has <laughs> explored that in really like exciting detail. So if you haven't read that book, I truly recommend it because it tells you exactly what the center of the Earth is like. And it's awesome. Do you want to do another another science question, John? Sure, yeah. No, the less I have to talk, the better. All right. This one's from Andrew, who asks, Dear Hank and John, according to a SciShow video uh, that I saw recently, salt of the ocean is just a mix of minerals picked up over thousands of years and not sodium chloride, like table salt. So what is the sea salt they put on my Wendy's fries? Is that less healthy than table salt? Actually, uh, I don't know if we misspoke in that SciShow episode or if you misheard, but it is a mix of minerals, uh, the primary one being sodium chloride. So the, the sea salt that they put on your fries at Wendy's is mostly sodium chloride, but sea salt also has a bunch of other stuff in it, like magnesium chloride and just whatever other salts, uh, which is what we call these ionic compounds in chemistry, whatever other salts got picked up uh, as rivers flow down to the sea. And uh, so that that table salt is mostly salt. Uh, well, table salt is all sodium chloride. Uh, sea salt is mostly sodium chloride with some other stuff thrown in. And that other stuff might be beneficial. Eh, you probably get it in other ways, though in addition to getting it in sea salt, which is why sea salt is mostly, let's be honest, it's just salt. Yeah, I very rarely hear of people who aren't getting enough uh, salt here in, uh, <laughs> at least no. in the United States. We don't have a huge sodium shortage. No, it's it's the other stuff that's in the sea salt that they think maybe you should be getting, like uh, like magnesium or phosphorus or whatever. But like you get that stuff other, other mm. ways. I will say, uh, on the topic of salts, as you know, Hank, I am a, a committed bather. I do not believe in showers, which are essentially just um, getting, getting attacked mm-hmm. uh, by millions of pellets of water, very kind of sort of liquefied bullets shooting you millions at a time. Uh, and so I take baths, and I enjoy nothing more than bath salts when I am bathing. What... What a pleasure. Is that is that the whole story? Is that just the thing you wanted to tell me? Yeah. What are what are bath salts? Well, as far as I can tell, they're smelly salts. Um, but I I there is a drug called bath salts, like a recreational drug. I know about yeah, yeah. this because I was uh the TSA um took my bath salts uh, from my carry-on bag once uh, when I was trying to get on an airplane, and they were like, what is this? And I was like, "That's my, those are my bath salts. I'm a, I'm a committed bather, <laughs> and you know, I'm going to be out of town for, for two days. And I looked up the hotel room that I'm going to be in, and I got a picture of its bathtub and everything. It looks like it's going to be a great bathtub. I'm very excited. And they were like, what, why are you taking bath salts to New York City? And I was like, because I, because I like to bathe in hotel rooms. And... I, I use bath salts. Doesn't everyone who takes baths? And anyway, it was a big miscommunication because apparently bath salts are also a drug, but I have I genuinely don't know if the bath salts that are the recreational drug are also the bath salts that you buy at Bed Bath & Beyond. But if they are, I might accidentally be addicted to, to bath salts. <laughs> well, I think you might be addicted to bath salts, uh, but only the kind that go in your bath, which are definitely different from the kind that people use as recreational drugs. Though I imagine they look somewhat similar, which is why they got that name. But yeah, not the same I mean, I I wouldn't say that my use of bath salts rises to the level of a recreational drug, but I will say that uh, I really like it. It's probably especially helpful when to soothe that aching pain of having uh, having a, a, a rib in several pieces. Oh, it's just so the the kind of rib fracture I have is it's not what's called a simple rib fracture. It's called a mm-hmm. displaced rib fracture, which means the two parts of my rib don't line up perfectly. Oh, but they're always trying to get back together. Uh-huh. And so when I move, they're like moving against each other and it hurts so freaking bad. 
That sounds awful. Uh, and and what I know about because uh, I I recently separated some cartilage from a rib, which is a very different but still painful thing. Um, and the the doctor was like, "Yeah, there's not really anything you can do. It's a rib. Just uh, don't hurt it." Yeah, my doctor was great in the ER. She was like, "You're so lucky you didn't lacerate your liver." And I was like, I don't feel lucky. <laughs> like, that's a very specific definition of luck. Like, if, do you wake up every morning, doctor, and say, I won the lottery today, didn't lacerate my liver? <laughs> yeah. No. I, have, uh... I would argue that I was incredibly unlucky. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always somebody who has it worse. Uh, my, my doctor, uh, when I first was diagnosed with ulcer- ulcerative colitis, was like, if you're going to be diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, this is the kind you want. And I was like, well, that, no. you know, that's something. That's something to look no. for. No, I don't. I'm not a big fan of that that beds that particular bedside manner of like you won't believe your good fortune. Here's all the things that aren't wrong with you. <laughs> it works for some people, not for others. It works okay for me. All right, Hank. Let's move on to another question. This question is from Natalie, who writes, "Dear John and Hank, I'm a first time emailer and a new listener. After my hairstylist recommended your podcast, first off, I just want to thank America's hairstylists for being such consistent supporters of the pod. <laughs> uh, secondly, I will now read the rest of the question. Uh, the, the question that has been the bane of my existence for quite some time is, what is proper door etiquette? How long do I hold the door open for someone when you open?" the door and someone is standing on the other side also looking at you with the deer and headlights expression who goes first i really don't understand these these are great questions they're two it's two distinct questions hank there's the first when when you open the door and you look behind you and someone is coming but they are in that middle distance where they are not about to be there but they also aren't like far away do you hold the door open and for how long? And then the second question, when you open a door and you see that there is someone about to come out of the door as you are about to go in it, who goes first? I, John, I was in a very weird situation. Uh, so in Montana, of course, we have double doors. So like, there's like a vestibule to keep the, the hot air inside in the winter. And I was in a very w- weird situation where I was walking up to the bagel place. Someone opened the door to go into the bagel place. Then I was coming in behind them, and they were kind of holding the door for me, though they weren't sure if I was going into the bagel place or if I was just walking sort of abnormally close to the building headed somewhere else. And uh, and then inside, so they were looking at me, but inside there was a person who had opened the other vestibule door and was holding the door open for the person who was holding the door, maybe open for me, but maybe not. And everybody, and then like, like, and suddenly everybody got very confused and they all just like scattered and, and people like dropped doors, started running. It was, it, it was a very straight. And I don't know that there was any way to do it except for the way that we ended up doing it, which was just every man for himself. Uh, the rules have broken and we just have to deal with the situation as it uh, comes to us. It was basically the purge, you know, like like there were there were no <laughs> the more door laws. holding purge. Now it's yes. just it's just people on their own as animals just trying to get through the day. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, well, and now like now, but also the problem that I hate this when you hold the door open for someone and then they go in in front of you, but then they're in front of you in line and you're like, hey, I like I wanted to hold the door for you, but I wasn't giving you my spot in line. I hate that. So you got to walk in. Mm, No, I disagree with you on that one. I think if you hold the door open for someone, that is a statement. I, I am now putting myself in a position where you shall be ahead of me in all the future interactions that we have. Um, the mm, thing I don't no. like is the double door situation where you hold the door open for someone in the double door situation. And then they, of course, are the first to the next door. And then they hold the door open for Have you to, yeah. and you end up winning by by trying to be generous. You end up being in first place. I love that. I think that that's the wonderful thing about about the double door is that like I can hold the door open for you, but then I still get my proper spot in line. No, see, for me, like I believe the last shall be first, not the last shall be first and then last again. <laughs> uh, so I think that's just a worldview <laughs> difference. But I so I'm going to argue that in general, this this door thing, both these door problems 
uh, boil down to the need to be kind and generous toward each other and also careful of each other. Like ultimately what it boils down to is that if you feel like somebody didn't hold the door open for you and you were close enough that they should have held the door open for you, you need to pause and say to yourself, you know what, that person probably had a brief moment of crisis and made the best decision that they could make in that moment. <laughs> they're not a bad person. They're not out to get me. They just, they made the call that they thought was right in that moment. And I don't think it was right, but I'm going to be okay with it. Alternately, if you are the person holding open the door and you look and you're like, I think that person's a little too far away, just make the best call that you can make in that moment and assume that everybody is going to be okay with it and not going to be mad at you. You know what I do, John? I kind of, I, I, if I sort of look a little bit before I open the door to see if maybe there's anybody around in a way that makes it clear that like when I open the door and I feel like that person's too far away, I don't have to look back at them and acknowledge their existence before closing mm. the door in front of them. I can... I, I sort of like know that they're back there and I don't look at all and I just let it go as if I'm just an unthinking person rather than someone who is intentionally closing a door on someone. Um, so try and surreptitiously look. You know what I'll do sometimes? Uh, if, if I feel like somebody's a little too far away, um, I'll just sort of, as I'm opening the door, I'll look back at them and I'll just sort of shrug as if to say like, sorry, man, but like, I don't know how to hold this door open. <laughs> I I honestly uh, will sometimes slow down as I'm approaching the door if I know that so there's someone who's a bit farther away. So that like, and sure. I'll just like take a real long time opening that door. Like, oh, I got distracted right. by this newspaper stand. And now I'm looking at that for a little while to make like let the person catch up so that I, but I will say, John, so here's a thing that I do that I wouldn't mind if other people did, but I'm not saying it's a necessary part of being a polite human. When I uh, have the door opened for me and it's a restaurant or something where there's a line, I will then stand by the door and let the person go in front of me so that they like, so that they are not punished for being kind and, and opening a door for me. Yeah, I mean, I... I there's a lot, of, a lot of etiquette that goes into I this. I think in general, in human life, Almost all the time, unless you are in a true like Wendy's emergency, where if you don't get your Wendy's as soon as possible, you're going to faint. Like if you're in a, on the edge of a diabetic coma or something, I think it's almost always the right thing to do to just say to the person who you held the door open for, why don't you go first? Uh, I am a big believer in like those little tiny acts of kindness making life bearable. Like I, I try, this is hard to do, but if you can imagine in the 99% of time when you aren't in a tremendous hurry and like when there isn't huge pressure on you to get something done, if you can remember that and remember that like you are not actually in a rush and you can treat other people as if they are in a rush, their days get so much better. Like they go home and they talk about this person who was nice to them. Because I really believe like it's made that much of a difference in my life in those times when I've been in a huge rush and people have been kind to me. Like it it makes a lasting difference. Like we talked in a recent episode, remember, where the I was jogging and the I said good morning and the person said it's 1202. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That made a lasting difference in my life. Like that stranger had a lasting impact in my life. It's just kind of a negative impact. <laughs> um, I, I think I if you can like try to find those little moments to have that positive impact, it's huge. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree. And I, I also really enjoy doing it. Like I, I feel like increasing the amount of appreciation in the world is uh, it makes me feel better as well. Yeah. So you win. You win when you hold the door open for someone and let them go uh, in line first, which reminds me, Hank, that today's podcast is brought to you by Wendy's. <laughs> Wendy's. You don't have to get there first to get those delicious sea salted fries. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Today's podcast is also brought to you by accounting. It's uh, it's necessary if you want to run a business and there's parts of your job that you're not going to like and it might be one of them. Accounting. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Laughing hurts so much. And today's podcast is also brought to you by bath salts. Bath salts, the kind that you put in the bath. And finally... This podcast is brought to you by Charlene's husband, who doesn't want to help anyone and just wants to Scrooge McDuck his neck broken. <laughs> Charlene's husband.
Wouldn't it be great if our podcast was actually sponsored by accounting, like as an abstract idea, if like the American Association of Accounting sent us a huge check every week and we could just like find different ways to work accounting into the podcast or alternately, if our podcast was actually sponsored by Wendy's or anyone, wouldn't it be great if someone paid us a bunch of money to talk about their product and or service on our podcast? I was recently uh, on Twitter trying to get LaCroix to send or LaCroix, sorry, to send me uh, send me three hundred. 178 12 packs of LaCroix, which is, uh, you know, would make my life better. I'd talk about LaCroix all day on this podcast if they'd send me some. God, I I love LaCroix. Like, if there's one thing, one way that my life has changed demonstrably since the success of The Fault in Our Stars, it's that I now buy as much LaCroix as I want, which is a lot. (laughs) You know, John, there's there's a thing about the world that I kind of dislike right now, Um, and that is the the sparkling Dasani and Aquafina that I'm starting to see at grocery stores because yeah, LaCroix found this thing and they were like oh my gosh we found a niche it's it's calorie free beverages that are flavored well and that are are refreshing when cooled and uh and and they found a niche that like that Coca-Cola and Pepsi missed. How weird and amazing is that opportunity? And LaCroix does not have good graphic design. Their, their logo is very weird. Their, the copy that they like their their packaging copy never makes any sense and always makes me just like crave to like hire a good copywriter for them. And I feel like their CEO writes it or something because it it's very like disconnected from reality. And then, but like, it works. It works so well and it has become so popular and it, it, it frustrates me to no end to know that somebody at Coca-Cola tried to buy LaCroix and LaCroix was like, no, we're going to do this on our own. And so they just came out with these like beautiful sparkling Dasani beverages and sparkling Aquafina beverages and uh, are trying to take on LaCroix. And I'm like, no, no, you will not. You cannot have this. There is one thing that you can't have and it's LaCroix. Yeah, Hank, I totally agree with you. But on on the other hand, um, if delicious sparkling Dasani water uh, wants me to uh, drink 378 of their beverages and receive a huge amount of money in exchange for talking about how much I love sparkling Dasani water, I'm more than happy to do that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, it's so funny, Hank. Like, I, y- the difference is that I am serious. I want to sell out so bad, and you don't. You genuinely don't want to sell out. It's so annoying. You guys don't know about this because, like, you don't have to deal with Hank in private, but, like, Hank will never sell out even in tiny little delightful ways. It's super annoying. That's not necessarily true. I sell out some ways. No, no, you don't. You really don't. I I struggle. I struggle, and I, I go one way some days and another way other days. Uh, just not with our sort of core properties of of like the the brother stuff because I feel like who needs it? It's this is the thing we're just messing around and it does like that's why that's why we have sp- fake sponsorships. Even though I ca- I kind of feel bad because of course many podcasts uh, need real sponsorships because they need to make it work because they put in a, a great deal of effort and they uh, want to be compensated for the great work that they do. But. Uh, but we don't have to do that. But I mean, but it's clear to Hank, Hank, none of our listeners, just just in case you're concerned about this, none of our listeners labor under the delusion that that we put in effort in this podcast. So <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. No one's out there thinking, God, they're working hard and not getting paid for it. They're out there thinking, I wonder when they're going to answer the next question. And the answer to that question is now. This episode of Dear Hank John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly ship to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, 
I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Uh, Hank, this question comes from Allison who writes, Dear John and Hank, hello, my name is Allison. Allison, I really like it when people repeat their names, so thank you. My ice maker broke, so I, Allison, am currently <laughs> using an ice tray. My question is, when is the best time to refill this ice tray? Do I, Allison, wait until all the ice is gone or until there are two to four cubes left? I would love to hear your opinions. Hank, I think that this is one of those there's two kinds of people in the world questions. Mm, nah, I think there's one kind of people in the world, maybe two kinds of people in the world. One who hasn't heard about the right way to do it. And then there's the other kind who just does it the right way. OK, well, why don't you just tell me what the right way is as 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 you usually do? Uh, OK, well, in that case, I absolutely will. Thank you, John. You put an, a separate container in the freezer and you empty out the ice tray into the bucket and then you refill the ice tray long before you have used all of the ice cubes. You don't take individual cubes out of the the thing. You break the thing and then you take all of them out at once. I mean, I, I, and then I will it. tell you something, which is that that is a brilliant solution that I have never thought of in all of my many years of not having an automatic ice maker. Um, I, let me tell you the way I do it, and then you can tell me whether you think your way or my way is better. The way I do it, and I've I've done this. We don't have an ice maker now. I've, I haven't had an ice maker in my fridge most of most of my adult life. And the way that I do it is that I have a couple um, ice trays that have ice cubes in them. I take those trays. I use all of the ice cubes. Uh, I put the empty trays back in the freezer, and then I go in to get ice cubes. And I'm like, "Dang it! Why did I not take three seconds to fill up this with water six hours ago? You idiot!" And then I get mad at myself. I drink a very warm Lacroix while I'm waiting for my new ice cubes to become ice cubes, and then I'm finally able to enjoy delicious, ref- refreshing, sparkling grapefruit LaCroix available now at grocery stores everywhere. Um, You know, John, they recently, uh, I don't know how recently, but they have coconut LaCroix now. And I stayed stayed well away from it for a while uh, thinking, and I'm not a big fan of coconut. I like uh, Thai food, though. And I like uh, I like Cracklin' Oat brand, which has a lot of coconut in it. But uh, for the most part, I'd, I'd prefer to not have to not interact with coconut too much. And I drank it, and I did not like it. Um, somebody got it for a party I went to. It was the only thing available. I had some, and I was like, eh. But then I mixed it with uh, with orange juice, and I liked that quite a lot. And then I put some lime juice in the coconut LaCroix, and that was very good. And it, I thought to myself, my goodness, I just put the lime in the coconut and mixed them both together and drank it all up. And I thought that was a wonderful moment in my life. <laughs> It hurts to laugh. It's so terrible. It's like this. Oh, God, it's extremely painful to laugh. Okay. uh, I'm glad that you got that lime in the coconut joke in there. It only took you four minutes uh, to arrive at. It was it was one of those jokes where the moment you said coconut LaCroix, I started to be like, is he going to put the lime in the coconut and drink it all together? Uh, And the answer, of course, was yes. Hank, uh, before before we sell out any further to a company that has given us no money or any delicious <laughs> beverages in the form of LaCroix, let's get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. All right. Do you want to give us some AFC Wimbledon news or should I tell you about the the fascinating news from Mars? Right, tell me the, the moose from Nars. Okay. Here's my, here's my Nars moose. Uh, so... NASA has a pro- uh, a program. It's called the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts uh, Program, and it 
helps sort of give small amounts of funding to ideas that would be revolutionary and would totally change spaceflight, but probably aren't going to turn into anything particularly useful. And one of the things that have gotten money from NIAC recently is a, a research project to induce a a hibernation-like state, a, a state of torpor in astronauts, allowing them to basically sleep all the way to Mars. And the way that they would do this is, is using... I know, it's like we talk about this in science fiction all the time, but they're actually like they are looking to take an a, a existing medical technique uh, called therapeutic hypothermia and uh, and actually apply that to healthy people who just uh, are taking up too much space and eating too much food, making it impractical to get them to Mars. And the uh, the application of this would not be for the first missions to Mars. It would be if we wanted to send like hundreds of people to Mars and uh, to basically actually create a sustainable uh, n- another human world in our solar system. And it would dramatically reduce, cut by a factor of 40, the amount of space that the people would need on their trip to Mars. Basically, the technique uh, works like this. They take your body de- temperature down like five degrees, and then they give you some drugs that basically put you into a kind of like suspended animation state. Um, and that is a thing that they currently do for people who have been badly injured uh, while they're uh, working on repairing their bodies. Uh, it is a thing that exists. It is not particularly safe. And we don't, of course, we've never tested it in microgravity. But um, but it is a thing that people are interested in doing and uh, would potentially be safer for astronauts because they could put more shielding on the containers. They could also, uh, they, their, their muscles might degenerate less in the time that they're traveling to Mars than it would in a normal microgravity environment while have, like, being awake. They would eat less food and they would, uh, it would be easier to get them there. Uh, but it is definitely a thing that is for the future. Uh, but I, I was fascinated to know, oh, sorry, they decreased the body temperature by nine degrees Fahrenheit, five degrees Celsius. And uh, yeah, it would it would uh, make it a lot easier to get a bunch of people to Mars, though, to be clear, it is just, uh, it is one of those things that is a, a high payoff uh, if it works, but probably won't work kind of thing. Follow-up question, um, and I don't mean to be insensitive in any way, but um, do they have the technology to lower your body temperature by nine degrees Fahrenheit and let you sleep off, uh, say, a broken rib injury? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I think usually but it's... You said it was. you said it was risky, so I assume <laughs> that it's not something I probably want to do myself, but... Yeah, it's, uh, I would love it if they could develop that for the next time I break a rib um, because this sucks. You know, John, I don't want to be insensitive to your pain, but I need you. I need you not in a, uh, a hypothermia-induced torpor uh, to do, to do oh, all the things I feel you like, have to do. Uh, I feel like things would be moving swimmingly if I were in a hyper- hypothermia-induced torpor right now. Um, speaking of hypothermia-induced torpors, <laughs> AFC Wimbledon uh, continue their League One season. Uh, as as a third tier English football team, Hank, you may remember that that I said last at the, toward the end of last season, if by some miracle, AFC Wimbledon were promoted, it would likely be a a sort of a one year venture mm-hmm. up there in the uh, you know the third tier of English football. Uh, so far, that's looking it's a smidge prophetic. Uh, <laughs> AFC Wimbledon very nearly uh, won their first game uh, of, of the League One season against Rockdale, possibly Rokedale. Nobody knows for sure how to pronounce it. Uh, they were up 1-0 um, in the 95th minute, which is five minutes longer than the game should have technically gone on. Uh, it was an injury time when Rockdale uh, scored to tie the game, meaning that AFC Wimbledon are now on two points uh, two points. The, the, the bad news um, about that is that Rockdale are also on two points. Oh, my uh, God. They are down there just above us at the very, very bottom of the table. We are last. They are second to last. So that is a game that we would have needed to likely probably would have been nice to win that one. But we didn't. So here we are on uh, two points, uh, having played five games. That's not where you want to be. Um, but I don't really have a but. That is not where you want to be. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, who's who? Who's been scoring for you, John? Well, uh, it, in 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 summary, no one. Um, 
which is a bit of the issue. You, you, you have isolated, there's sort of two issues, which is that we are not scoring enough goals. And then there's the second issue, which is that we are uh, giving up too many. I feel like if we addressed either of those issues, it might it might lead to a significant improvement in the results. Um, I'm, listen, I'm not a football commentator, but I feel like if we were getting more goals in and letting fewer uh, in, that we would, you know, be be scoring uh, more. Um, there is some good news. George Frankham, the Frankenstein, is coming back uh, after almost like five months away. Uh, Lyle Taylor has scored a couple of goals. There's a new there's a new guy who's doing okay. Polion. Uh he's been scoring some goals. Uh Dom Polion. But uh no, it is not uh it's not great at the moment. But there's still a lot of season left. It's only five games in. We'll see. I just Googled AFC Wimbledon and, and Tuesday, August thirtieth, Wimbledon won against Swansea City three zero. Yeah, no. Uh that's the Swansea City under twenty three side. Not the grown-up Swansea City, and it's in a uh, it's in a competition oh. called the uh, it's it's not the League One competition, and indeed, or is it the FA Cup? It's this uh, sort of it's the Football League Cup, which I believe right now is called like the Change Away Cup or something because it has a sponsor that's some betting site. Right, I don't know. Right. It, it it it's great to get a win in. I'm not sure that that really counts as a uh, as a proper victory though. I would agree with you. Uh, I agree. Uh, and I see uh, now looking at the League One table that indeed you are 24th of 24. Yes, that is correct. Uh, sitting comfortably in 24th. But I will remind you, if we finish 20... Nope. If we finish tw- 20th, I don't think that... Uh, if we, fin- we do All we have to do is finish 20th. Well, or above, you know, that's not nothing. And then you can you can stick it in there and maybe maybe you can get against the Dons and you can you really only got to win one game this season, John, and it's against the MK Dons. I prefer to think of them as the franchise currently playing in Milton Keynes since they have no right to use uh, the nickname the Dons. But yes, uh, I'd like to win (laughs) a bunch of games this season, but there are certainly two uh, that I have circled on the calendar. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, John, what did we learn today? Well, we learned that accounting is important, even if it's boring. Uh, we learned that you probably don't want to dive headfirst into a vat full of coins, so instead you should fold them up into origami dollar thingies. And, of course, we also learned that Hank has a significantly better way of dealing with ice trays than John does. And, finally, we learned that the Mars rover does not, in fact, sing itself happy birthday every year uh, after a year it's been, another year it's been on Mars, which is really too bad. You'd think they'd just, like, have, have it happen. Have a go with that. Uh, what 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 harm is it doing? Come on, let it sing itself a song alone on a dark, desolate planet until that wonderful moment when a human comes up and says, "How you doing, buddy? Good work." And that's going to happen in 2027. I can't wait uh, for that to happen in 2029. <laughs> our podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our intern is Claudia Morales. Rosiana Hulse Rojas helps us out with the questions. Our theme music is by Gunnarola Hank. I think I told people where to email us, but just in case, if you want to email us, uh, you can do so at hankandjohn at gmail.com. I believe that covers it, except to say, Hank, yes. as we say in our hometown. Don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.